A lot of times I wonder about the timing of just how things seem to work out. For example, if you're running late going somewhere because you forgot your phone in the house, then on your way there's a bad car crash. That could have lined up with where you would have been if you weren't running two minutes late. Now, that's a small scale sample of this, but a theory that I tend to think of probably too much of how just one small decision leads to something later down the line. And while researching this case, I couldn't help but think about that a lot. If the timing of several small things would have been just a little bit different, would we be talking about this case today? I'm your host, Coy, and this is the story of Rico Harris. Rico Harris was born on May 19, 1977 in Los Angeles, California. Shortly after he was born, his dad received a job offer in Oregon, so the family moved up there shortly, then back to L.A. where Rico's father and mother had three more children. Rico's father, Henry, was described as being physically and verbally abusive to the children and his wife, Margaret. For the children, he seemed to target Rico for the abuse. I'm sure this had a huge psychological effect on Rico, for the rest of his life, because as a teenager and as an adult, he wanted his dad's approval. Margaret eventually made the move to leave Henry and take the kids with her. They moved to Alhambra, California, where she grew up, which was just outside of Los Angeles, and I apologize in advance if I'm pronouncing that wrong. Rico was a pretty big kid. By high school, he was 6 feet 8 inches tall and 215 pounds, and while he loved to play basketball, he initially wanted to be an actor. So at 15 years old, he and a friend went to Hollywood High School, which, of course in Hollywood, was a high school that helped develop students' acting skills. But just a year into that, Rico changed his mind, and he returned to basketball, where he was an immediate success. He was recruited by UCLA, and newspaper articles described him as being one of the best high school basketball players in the country. Off the court, Rico was more introverted. He kept to himself a lot. He also didn't do too well academically. But that changed when he started dating a girl. He became more social, and her family helped him with studying, where his grades started improving. But even with the improving grades, he didn't do so well on the SATs, and he lost his scholarship to UCLA. Rico then went to Arizona State, and after some legal trouble there, he went to Los Angeles City College, where he quickly became the team's star player and led the team to their first ever community college state title. After college, Rico still had his eyes set on the NBA. He started playing semi-professional basketball with hopes of someday making it to the NBA. He played in San Diego, and then in the spring of 2000, he joined the Harlem Globetrotters. A month after joining the team, Rico was in South Los Angeles with a girlfriend. An argument broke out between Rico and some other people, and someone hit him in the back of the head with a baseball bat. Now, Rico was able to leave on his own, and he drove away. But soon after that, he started having intense headaches, and he couldn't keep his balance while walking or standing. I'm not sure if he sought any medical attention over this or not at the time, but the headaches and balance issues continued for a long period of time. Not only did this bring an end to his basketball career at only 24 years old, 
but it completely changed the rest of his life. After his injury, Rico returned to living with his mom. He felt lost at the time. The goals he had been working towards for so long were now gone. Not only that, but being a basketball player had become his identity. Now he didn't have a job and he had no idea what he was doing with his life. Rico began drinking a lot. It became an addiction for him. His mom started taking care of him and she hoped that he would pull himself out of it. But his addiction only worsened and he eventually turned to drugs to include heroin, meth, and crack. He was arrested for public intoxication quite a bit. He would sit in jail for a few days and then would start right back once he was released. A friend of Rico's, David Laura, described this as being one of the darkest times of Rico's life. It seemed that he was not only dealing with the feeling of being lost in life, but also his childhood traumas. In 2007, just after turning 30 years old, Rico had an overdose on prescription meds. After that, he went into rehab. It took Rico a while to finish, but after the program, Rico seemed to have recovered and was doing well. He ended up becoming roommates with a guy from the program, he started working as a security guard, and then in 2012, he met a woman named Jennifer Song, who was visiting LA from Seattle. Rico and Jennifer began dating. They took turns spending long weekends with each other in either Seattle or Los Angeles, and by 2014, they started talking about getting married, and Rico moved to Seattle with her. Rico lined up a job interview as a property appraiser, but before that interview, he wanted to return to California and talk to his mother and his brother. Jennifer believed that he wanted to talk to them about things that he was dealing with that happened in his childhood that he was still having a very difficult time with. While driving back to Southern California, Rico called his friend David and while driving back to Southern California, Rico called his friend David and seemed like he was doing pretty well. He talked about his plans to marry Jennifer and how he wanted to start a family. On October 9th, 2014, Rico met with his brother. He took him out to eat and gave him a new cell phone as a gift. After dinner, he then went and talked to his mom privately. He left and then he came back just after midnight to get more of his personal items from the house. And then he left again. His job interview was supposed to be the following day in Seattle and it would already be an 18 hour drive from there to Seattle. Rico drove north on Interstate 5. He stopped around 10.45 in the morning on October 10th to get gas in Lottie, California, about 40 minutes south of Sacramento. From there, he called Jennifer. He left her a voice message saying that he hadn't slept much since he first left Seattle, so he was going to go up to the mountains and rest. 30 minutes later, he turned off his phone. No one has heard from Rico since. When Rico didn't show up in Seattle when he was supposed to and he wasn't answering his phone, Jennifer called Rico's mom. Now Rico had sort of taken off before without any contact from anyone and went to San Diego, so they decided to wait a little bit and see if he returned. A few days went by and Rico missed the job interview. On October 14th, he was reported missing to the Alhambra Police Department. Later that evening, a deputy in Yolo County noticed that a black Nissan Maxima was sitting abandoned in a county parks lot along the Cashier Creek. The deputy noticed the same car was parked there the day before. As he took a closer look at the car, he saw CDs, credit cards, and papers scattered all around. When he ran the tag, they found that it belonged to Rico's mom, 
They contacted her and she explained that Rico was driving at last and that he was last heard from a few days ago and he was missing. The area where the car was found was in Rumsey, California, which would have been about 45 minutes out of the way if Rico was driving from the place that he got gas in Lottie. But it was consistent with his voice message that he was going to go rest in the mountains because this was in the mountains. The car was towed and searched, and rescue teams began looking around the area. They had ATVs, helicopters, an airplane, and search dogs. A five-mile radius of where the car was found was extensively covered in approximately 27 miles along Route 16, which was the road that the car was parked off of, was searched. After three days of searching, there were no signs of Rico. Rico's information was released around the area. One person reported that they saw someone matching that description walking along Route 16 around 5.30 in the afternoon on October 11th. Another person said that they saw him sitting on a guardrail that overlooked the creek near the parking lot. When the car was searched, investigators learned that it was out of gas and that the battery was almost dead. They found all but one of his credit cards in his wallet. The missing credit card has not been used since he went missing. What was missing was his phone and driver's license. They also found two plastic bottles. One was mostly full of liquor, and the other was empty but had the odor of alcohol. Now, I'm not sure if Rico's sobriety after rehab, if he cut out alcohol completely or just drugs, and maybe after his emotional meeting with his family, he relapsed with alcohol. On October 18th, eight days after Rico last called Jennifer, there was another reported sighting. But this wasn't from around the time that he was reported missing. This was just recently. The person reported seeing a tall, large man at the parking lot where the car was recovered from. When police returned to the parking lot, investigators found a trail of footprints that were a size 18 shoe leading from the parking lot where the car was towed from to the nearby creek. The investigators then found Rico's backpack about 1,500 feet from the guardrail that overlooked the creek. In the backpack was Rico's phone, a charger, and a few other items. In the phone, investigators found photos that he had taken of the creek, selfies in the area, and videos of him singing along to music in the car. All of them were time-stamped for the night of October 10th. Divers also searched the creek, but they came up empty. The lead detective on this case does not believe that foul play was involved. The detective believes that Rico may have left the backpack where it was found, either accidentally dropping it or leaving it there purposely so that he couldn't be tracked by the phone. He believed that Rico decided to take a nap in the parking lot. He had a lot of thoughts on his mind after meeting with his family in that he may have decided not to go to Seattle just yet. He theorized that Rico may have decided to wander the area for a few days and when he returned, his car had already been towed. From there, it's all unknown. He may have went back to the wooded mountains, to another town, or he may have gotten a ride from somewhere. I think the witness seeing someone matching Rico in the parking lot eight days after he was last heard from, then the footprints that led to the creek and the backpack is a huge thing in this case. I think it shows that he was alive. He could have been delirious from being up so long, 
who knows how long he actually slept. Also adding in a relapse with alcohol, then after that, no one really knows what happened. I think another big thing is just, where was he for those eight days? Did he go up into the mountains, into town? Did he find someone to stay with? It's a lot of unanswered questions. The Yolo County Sheriff's Office is asking anyone with any information about Rico that may have seen him then or since then to reach out to them. This is going to bring us to a conclusion of this episode, but stay tuned after the outro music for the debrief, and thank you for listening. First of all, I want to give a shout out to a few people for joining the Patreon group, Tiffany and Angela Hacker. Thank you both. Also, thank you to my dad for joining. If you're interested in joining the Crime Nerds membership group, I'm trying something new. The hosting platform I use for this podcast, Buzzsprout, started their own version of a fan club site. Their version is supposed to make it a lot easier to sign up where the episodes show up in the podcast feed and you can sign up right there by clicking on one of the episodes that shows it's locked instead of going to another platform. So you can sign up there. Or if you already have a Patreon account, I'm still using that as well. The link to that is in the show notes. I will say this about the Buzzsprout one. They do things a little different where you can choose to pay more. Don't do that. It's $5 a month for two extra episodes, and I really don't understand the model. But if you choose to pay more, it's still just two episodes, so save your money there and don't pick the paying more thing. The money you spend here is really appreciated, and it goes to supporting this podcast and a few local charities to include a domestic violence shelter around where I live. And I'll be honest, in case you didn't know, this is not a big podcast. I don't make a lot of money. In fact, in most months, I lose money. But I figured even 5 to $10 here and there to these charities is at least something helpful. If this podcasting community continues to grow, then we will be able to help a lot more. And that is one of the things that keeps me doing this. But I know you didn't stick around to hear me talk about the business side of this podcast, so here's today's story for the debrief. This story takes us to New York City in 2021, when six guys came up with a plot to kidnap a random person and hold them for ransom. Now I'm going to say that this is probably the first of their dumb decisions, because most ransom kidnappings, there's at least some research into who they are taking and making sure that they would have the money. So they found a guy on Facebook Marketplace selling a car and made an agreement with him to buy it at 10 p.m. at night. Now, maybe this is normal in New York City because it is the city that never sleeps, but as a rule of thumb, I'd suggest not meeting people in the middle of the night. Actually, is 10 p.m. the middle of the night? Maybe I'm just getting old, but it seems too late to meet someone to sell something. But the man agrees to meet, and when he does, six guys grabbed him, threw him in a car, and they showed him a gun, which later turned out to be fake. They then blindfolded the guy and called his cousin from his phone. They demanded $10,000 for him to be returned safely. The cousin was able to track the iPhone, whether they shared locations or used Find My iPhone, and he noticed that the phone was moving down the road as they were driving to a new spot. Then it stopped. And where it stopped was right outside the New York City Police Department's training facility. The cousin called 911, told them what was happening, and cops from the NYPD training facility came and arrested the six guys. I can just picture in the back of the cop car them looking at the driver like out of all places this is where you had to stop. But the moral of the story is don't kidnap people. And if you're meeting someone in the middle of the night to sell something, please be safe. Thank you for listening. 
and I hope you have a great day.